You're listening to Simulcast, a podcast about healthcare simulation. So welcome to another episode of Simulcast. This is our November going on December episode of Journal Club. Very special end of year Journal Club podcast because I'm joined not just by one but by both of my colleagues. Welcome, Ben Simon and Jesse Spur. How are you, Ben? Mate, I am good. I'm really pumped to have Jesse here. I missed him so much after we did that Journal Club live at Don't Forget the Bubbles. So keen to have it happen again. And he's been very, very kind to be our expert this month. So lots to learn from him. Yes, Jesse, you're dual badged here, one of the simulcast team, but also offering our expert commentary. How are you? It was a really nice pleasure to be um, invited to write the expert commentary, although the expert bit, I think, is probably a little bit uh, superfluous in that one, but I'm going really well. And um, like Ben said, since Don't Forget the Bubbles, I've had uh, this kind of aching little pang there to get back into the Journal Club team. All right, well, let's see if we can sort out that aching pang. Uh, so, listeners, we're going to do what we always do. We've got our journal of uh, article of the month, and Ben's going to lead our discussion about that. And then we've got two or three little extra papers that um, I'll be discussing. So, Ben, tell us about this month's paper. All right, so I was pretty pumped to see the discussion about this one, and it felt like a bit of a happy ending when I first read it. So, for the um, end of the year... It's entitled Hospitals with More Active Participation in Conducting Standardized in Situ Mock Codes Have Improved Survival After In-Hospital Cardiopulmonary Arrest. And it was published in Resuscitation, uh, technically in December 2018. And it's by Josie et al. And look, we've touched on this a few times in Journal Club that sim training is often asked to prove that the expenses that are involved in delivering stuff actually translate to better patient outcomes than traditional medical education efforts. And while we'd love to and we all instinctively believe that that's what we're often achieving, it's a really tricky thing to prove uh, for a lot of different reasons. And so uh, what Josie et al. did in this particular paper is they did something called an ecological study, which is best sort of used to test hypotheses. And so the hypothesis that they were trying to test is that essentially, I guess, more in situ sim is going to be associated with better patient outcomes. So for those of you who are unfamiliar with ecological studies, I guess essentially it's where you study a population and you observe the frequency of an event occurring within different subgroups of that population. And so the most famous of those would be um, the classic study uh, by a guy called John Snow who identified an association with cholera and families near a particular contaminated water pump in London. So it's really good at generating that kind of hypothesis that you can then test in other ways. So what they did in this study is they took 28 acute care hospitals in the US and uh, this group called Banner Simulation organized to provide some personnel and training resources. And in 26 of those hospitals, they provided in situ mock code training. And the hospitals ranged from like a big 700-bed university hospital to an 18-bed rural facility. And as they ran these in situ codes, a lot of data was recorded by the facilitators. So things like time of recognition of arrhythmia, compression initiation time, code activation time, whether a backboard was placed, whether an oropharyngeal airway was inserted, the first drug that was given, et cetera, et cetera. And after collating all of the simulated data that they gathered, they then also looked at each hospital's real patient data 
for survival of in-hospital cardiac arrest. And I think that was quite clever in some ways because it accounts somewhat for that classic problem you might have where you might have one hospital with a whole bunch of really sick patients who are just kind of expected to have a higher mortality. Uh, But this paper really analyzed the specific question of if you arrest, arrest in any of these hospitals, what's your chance of surviving the arrest rather than a hospital admission per se? And I guess just to snapshot the big take-homes from their eventual findings was that they're a little bit conflicting. So with regards to simulation performance, they noted that hospitals with more active in situ participation achieved a higher percentage of simulated defib in less than two minutes. But other than that, they didn't really demonstrate a huge difference in composite CPR performance or teamwork. But then when they actually looked at patient outcomes, they found that the hospitals with more active in situ MOT codes had a in-hospital cardiac arrest survival rate of 42.8% versus 31.8% in hospitals with less active in situ participation. And it was with a pretty small p-value of like p.0.0001. So that was pretty exciting. And I thought this paper would cause a bit of a buzz on the journal club and uh, we'd certainly seen it causing a bit of a buzz on Twitter beforehand. What did you guys think? Just to kick off a couple of quick thoughts uh, like you, it was always useful to Google ecological study. Uh, That was a new term for me. I I think overall, you're right, it's tricky to really interpret the findings, Uh, but even in terms of the setup, this is a very technically focused intervention, and I guess as one who spends a lot of time in team training, it's very simple. That said, it's very interesting to see what people were doing. And it is amazing the data that they collected like that, I think, are the triumphs of the paper is just to really show what a textbook way, if you're serious about measuring something, how well you can. Um, just in terms of numbers of SIMs they did, because I think this metric uh, inside your mock codes per 100 beds per year is a little bit hard to understand. But for instance, it would mean at Gold Coast University Hospital, we'd be doing somewhere around 120 to 130 Uh, a year of those sorts of in situ sims. Now, we don't do sort of mock codes as they describe. We probably do slightly more complicated sims, and we would do nearly that many, but that's a lot in my book. And so they really are comparing a very active group of hospitals with um, a significantly less active ones. And I think Jesse talked about this in his uh, commentary, but I guess the confounders of is it just the people who are really motivated to improve happen to do a lot of sims and happen to have better outcomes. So, uh, look, great contribution, isn't it? Definitely got something to teach us uh, and we'll look forward to sort of more building on this. Absolutely. And so we were so lucky to have you, Jesse, provide uh, an expert commentary that I really hope uh, a lot of people download on our PDF. It's uh, full of a lot of humour, a lot of passion and a really uh, very clever sort of critique of the paper as well. I'm just wondering if you could share some of your perspectives. Yeah, thanks, Ben. Um, I think as Vic kind of alluded to, my main sort of thing coming to it was this concept of the chicken or the egg. What is it about those um, higher activity hospitals that is actually causing the better cardiac arrest outcomes, uh, better survival rates from cardiac arrest in in hospital? Um, I, I tend to feel that it's a little bit reductionist to kind of imply cause. And I don't think that, I think the authors actually showed a lot of restraint in the way that they actually stuck to the methods of their study, the ecological study, because um, 
there would have been a lot of temptation to actually imply a, a dose response effect and they they did really well with actually maintaining those two observed groups of the higher um, activity versus the lower activity so i thought that was a great start and a great sort of true uh, staying true to the design of the study they did actually say in the limitations at the end of the study that it was a hypo- an hypothesis generating study and i think that's actually a really great way to sort of summarize it that said i think it's going to be really hard with the face value that is there um, that doing more training around a targeted intervention is going to be a good thing it's going to be very hard to actually do any higher level of uh, research on this topic so i think this may be the best study we see in this space um and i think paired with some of the as i mentioned in the commentary paired with some of the other stuff that we've seen from betsy hunt and the um improved survival um and again time to defibrillation being a big metric in that um in pediatric in in hospital cardiac arrest and also um the recommendations from the aha educational um, scientific educational study statement recently which we featured last month um i think there's a growing sort of body there that we probably uh, have enough to rationalize that this is a good thing and we don't really need to do a randomized control trial in this space yeah, I think I want to echo your appreciation of how clear they were at, at sticking to their ecological model and not sort of generating uh, a bunch of overreach regarding their claims. And I think it was really interesting, even in the journal club, we kind of, in the comments this month, we felt, I guess, a, a few times you could kind of sense this sort of tend to start overreaching a little bit with regard to the claims of the paper and I guess with the best of intention really wanting to use this paper as a little bit of a sales pitch and and proof and I guess one of the things that came up particularly was this concept of dose response which Glenn had brought up after contacting one of the authors as as with concern about what you'd mentioned and this this idea that if we're actually going to hit the prescribed dose of insight juice sim that is outlined in this paper it it, it um is going to be very hard to achieve that for a lot of simulation services uh and and so I think there is a little bit of danger there in saying this was not sort of a clear cause and effect and and then to then take the numbers generated from this paper and say well this is how we've got to run with stuff one of the things i'm really really curious about is um what enabled the higher activity centers to actually support and deliver that that amount of simulation we know it's um it's an expensive modality of training and there's a lot of time resource um, humans involved in delivering that sort of training so I think the implication there is that there's there's likely to be a very high institutional focus on um, a desire to improve cardiac arrest outcomes which then brings in a lot of the other questions so given that I think still one of the highest um, the, the greatest interventions we can make in terms of survival of in hospital cardiac arrest is making sure that only the patients that really can benefit from resuscitation receive that intervention. So they're going to be coded as a cardiac arrest patient rather than um, dying secondary to their disease as many do in hospital without hands on their chest each day. So I think that's one that really I think I found quite interesting thinking about this is 
are these centres that are, I'd assume have really good clinical governance around uh, in, in hospital cardiac arrest and resuscitation in general, are they also filtering out those that aren't likely to benefit from resuscitation? So you're going to see a significant split on the survivorship there. Yeah, I think it's always a problem when you're using mortality, which is so attractive because of its simplicity, but then that very simplicity, of course, means it can sometimes minimise some of those context things. Uh, On that note, you know, it seems to me actually that a lot of these are quite small hospitals in which they've been doing this, if you actually look at their numbers of beds. And just as Jesse said, there's actually quite a lot of cardiac arrests and their overall survival rate is very high. So it might have been cool to see if they had an arm where there was no in situ mock codes, how they did, or even an historical comparison to their outcomes before they started doing them. So those two things might have gone to that dose question. Yeah, I think that uh, would have been a really nice uh, addition to the paper. I guess just um, in terms of the Journal Club comments this month, there were kind of really a couple of consistent themes. And I think one we've already touched on, which is this widespread admiration for the level of detail and the breadth of data that was collected in this study. The second was that concern that for big hospitals in particular, it's really hard to hit the prescribed dose of in situ sim that's implied in the paper. And I guess just an acknowledgement that an ecological study generates hypotheses, not not proof. I've mentioned already that Glenn voiced this concern about the dose response. Interesting, just in terms of the paper's starts, I guess it was acknowledged that there's not clear causation um, with insight to sim that Jesse's sort of outlined much more articulately than I can. I think the thing that really struck out for me was that lack of difference in measurable CPR quality improvement between groups as well, because I, I'm really struggling to make the jump uh, between the actual training that's being provided versus the culture that's being reinforced. I think, Vic, that I really appreciated your reframe on the importance of these papers, though, with your, your statement on the Journal Club this month, where you just said, look, robust, generalized impact papers on InSightU Sim are all welcome, even including negative studies. And we need to know when we aren't having an impact, too. The question is not, does it work, but for what and whom and under what circumstances? That's lines lifted completely from my qualitative research mates. Oh, I love it. (laughs) (laughs) So I I think we've kind of touched on most of the stuff that came out of this month's online discussion as well. So just a big thank you to everybody who participated in this month's discussion and also for all of you who've contributed over the whole of the year. It's um, I know it's a big effort to come online and uh, make some comments and read all these papers and uh, it's certainly uh, been a big help to me. I'm very appreciative to the little community of practice that we've developed. Well, well done, Ben, and uh, great work on having to wait all over the Christmas holidays until we find out about the murder that's going on <laughs> in your long-running serial. Yeah, yeah. You know, I'm not. I might have pushed people too far. I don't. <laughs> Time will tell. Time will tell. No. So, if you want to get really literary, Snithe, the guy who's died, I've always used him as the person who questions the value of sim and whether it actually makes any clinical difference. So it was almost like he died in the paper where we were selling that the question had finally been solved. You're just full of metaphor, Ben. Oh, no, <laughs> I'm a deep, deep Pathos guy. Pathos and I'm metaphor. Deep guy. All right. Well, I would just also echo your encouragement for people to go online and read Jesse's commentary because that is also well worth a read. You're listening to Simulcast. 
All right, we might go on to our other, uh, well, three papers, although two of them are related. And my theme this month is a little bit around simulation design and in particular the concepts of how we incorporate or think about complexity science in simulation and then also how we think about realism in uh, design of particularly procedural simulation. So the first paper is in fact an opinion piece by a fellow called John Lorna and the title of it is Complexity Made Simple. And this is in the Postgraduate Medical Journal in October 2018 and uh, I saw this first on Twitter and I follow John Lorna which is actually worth doing because he's a clever fellow, been involved in uh, health professional education but also writes rather well, um, involved in narrative medicine and some of the other more interesting aspects of how we think about our care in health. Uh, But this paper, he really wants to talk about complexity science and in particular the fact that many people doing this has made it too confusing. Now, what do we mean by complexity science? This is no nothing new to anyone who actually works in healthcare. It is complex. There's lots of things that go on around any patient journey because we have so many team members, many steps, many options for care. And this has led people into studying what it is about complexity and also how hard it is then to improve things uh, given that there are many unintended consequences. And in fact, uh, he defines this complexity really with two statements. One is, and I'm quoting from him, uh, related to the law of unintended consequences, which means anything we attempt to do, either at work or in our daily lives, can result in consequences we never foresaw. And it's kind of interesting if we take that most recent paper as an example, maybe all that focus on in situ mock codes means they weren't actually training in teamwork for trauma or they weren't actually practicing in the cath lab. And so it may be that the very things that improved mean that there were other things that were neglected. That's an example of um, the law of unintended consequences. And then his second part of the complexity science uh, is summed up by another saying, the whole is more than the sum of its parts. And again, Uh, no stranger to anyone, but it just seems that when everything goes well, we get more than just the sum of the parts. Somehow there's a synergistic outcome. And then he sort of goes on to say that people have made it more complex than it needs to be. And he does give a nice little, literally in two columns, a bit of a summary of some of the people who are writing around this. And one of those I'll just point out because if people are interested in reading, I think this is the one to read, and that is the white paper by Jeffrey Braithwaite and his colleagues here in Australia. And, uh, in fact, this editorial features a box which um, talks about how we should be promoting complexity thinking, which includes using tools like role plays and simulations in order to see what happens when you do try and make changes and improve things. So, as I said, I think this is... um, something we do need to pay attention to in SIM because in many ways this is exactly why we do team training and why we're in particular interested in in-situ SIM because we know we can't capture many of these uh, complex interactions between human beings and each other, human beings and the environment, human beings and the systems unless we're actually immersed within it. It's a bit like the difference between doing a randomised control trial because you just can't anticipate all the confounders versus doing a uh, case control study where you try and identify them all. So some things are suitable for the sim lab, but if you really want to capture complexity in many ways, going into the clinical environment is what we're trying to do. So maybe a little bit of a um, conceptual piece there, but uh, thoughts, Ben, Jesse? I love I love a good aphorism um, and the fact that he centred that paper around a couple um, really got me going. Now, the, the 
I think it's a really nice sort of way to wrestle back some of the like the imperative that a lot of academics have to make things more complex so that they can get publications on advancement of theory um, versus people who just want to actually understand this so that we can do a better job with our very complex humanistic systems that we work in, such as health. Um, I've got to give a shout out to our good friend Chris Hicks here because he did a really nice um, similar job of uh, of taking a very simple approach to complexity um, in a talk from Smack in Berlin um, about eighteen months ago now, and it, it was really really excellent. And he kind of focused on four main strategies in that for managing complexity in healthcare. Um, one of those was the power of habit and routines, so actually deliberately building habit. Um, one was how to actually harness emergent order. And some of this is we've started to, we've been talking about a little bit in um, terms of team management and emergent coordination within teams. And um, one is also looking at strategies for factoring down complex problems. Um, and another in a clinical context, in particular resuscitation one, is how to constrain chaos or limit the variables. Um, so I think just that's just an, another shout out to a really good piece, and we'll include that in a link to that in the notes as well. Yeah, that's a really nice uh, uh, reference point, Jesse. I'd um, I hadn't forgotten about the talk, but I hadn't necessarily made the connection until you just mentioned that. Agree, another great contribution, uh, Ben. What do you think? Yeah, look, um, I really thought that the aim of the paper was succeeded. So I thought it succeeded in the main goals of being a very personal paper that deconstructed something that's exceedingly complex and made it really nice and simple. And really the way that it's worded as well felt like a nice discussion over a good wine or something. Um, it you know had a nice little bit of humor and um, was a good taste tester. I don't think I walked away from it as a complete newbie in complexity theory with a lot of nuance about it, but certainly it's a great way of introducing the basic concept and introducing you to further resources. Yeah, sounds good. I mean, I think what it means for us as simulation uh, providers, educators, facilitators, um, as I said, I guess uh, as a way of incorporating in sim design, but I also think as debriefers, this is a nice repertoire of uh, knowledge or perspective that is useful to have around complexity science because I do think it means that when you're in that debrief, you're not trying to just norm people towards linear thinking, oh, if only you'd done this, then that would have happened, but instead recognising that uh, some of the concepts around resilient organisations uh, can be really useful to mine as a discussion point in debriefing. So our next paper sort of tease off from here a little bit and it was interesting I picked this one because uh, the author of this paper Jerry Gormley who we've actually had here on simulcast before from Queen's University in Belfast is the first author of a paper entitled learning to manage complexity through simulation students challenges and possible strategies and this is actually a couple of years old it's from perspectives in medical education in 2016 and in fact Jerry tweeted a link to this paper in response to John's uh, article and so that was um, how it sort of came to my consciousness but I thought this was a nice way of saying well okay we think complexity science is real they set out to say we also think it's important for medical students to gain a perspective of this and that's pretty easy to understand how could we design some simulation to help medical students understand it so what they did was they designed a complex sim 
in which medical students were required to behave as junior doctors. And then what emerged during the simulation was what they described as some complexity. And one of the things that happened uh, was that there was a family conflict around an end-of-life discussion and the other was a sort of ethical professionalism breach that happened. So kind of an interesting simulation design. And the students went into this. They spent no more than 15 minutes in the scenario. And during the scenario, the students actually wore little video recording glasses. And then the data they collected was in watching those videos back with the students and doing some interviews about how they found it. So it was actually kind of an interesting uh, setup. And I think obviously there's some challenges in trying to recreate complexity. But I guess you could argue that at this student's level, this was a level of complexity that they would have found pretty challenging. And in fact, that's what they said. So unsurprisingly, uh, the things that they found from the students were things that we would have thought like they were unprepared for diving in, that they got caught up in this sort of escalating uh, sequence of events. Uh, the fact that the patients were there and they weren't sure what to do or how to break out of a conversation with a patient and also that um, particularly when it came to the professionalism, they found it very hard to not uh, just be part of the gang rather than speak up against what was uh, happening in terms of the unprofessional behaviour. And then they go on to also hypothesise and based on their data draw out some possible strategies for students to manage complexity. So uh, I haven't provided too much detail there, but that's the kind of gist of it. I think this was an interesting concept. I think maybe not as consciously as this. I've probably tried to do some of this with my medical students, although I may not have labelled it as such. Uh, and uh, I guess it also, though, illustrates that it is challenging to really capture complexity. It makes me wonder, you know, what's the place of sim versus the uh, real-life scenarios? So I'll open it up, gentlemen. Uh, what did you think, Ben? Well, can I just jump on that? Because it did, while I was reading it, it did remind me a lot of your simulated ED in some ways. Less complex, I mean, more complex, but that kind of need for the med students to learn how to filter certainly came yeah. through. Yes. So just for listeners, we run at my institution, a, it is significantly more complex students spend two hours working a shift in a simulated ED with there's multiple patients, multiple providers and supervision. And you're right, I think uh, to some extent, you know, we, we don't really mind what cases people get out of it or what content they have. It's really about immersing themselves in a role where there are competing priorities, time management um, and having to be flexible in how they deal with things. So you're right. I mean, I certainly haven't labelled it as nicely as Jerry did, but um, similar aspirations. Yeah, I guess um, I liked it as a paper. I thought it was an interesting introduction to some of those concepts. From an intervention point of view, I guess I had some concern about kind of jumping up to the top of Bloom's taxonomy almost. Like I feel like, well, I know certainly when I studied med, I just wanted to know what the liver does. Like <laughs> that was that was kind of my level of knowledge when I started med school. And so I think sometimes- And you actually learned I it? know eventually, I yeah. I still don't know. <laughs> Something to do with alcohol and paracetamol. But the I think for me, the I don't know, throwing med students in to this idea that's really useful to us as maybe- a more senior clinician, I think, maybe doesn't acknowledge that there's things that you need to learn at the start of the, your career um, that aren't maybe as exciting as the things you might learn later, but you've just got to, you need the processing time to do it. So I, I agree with your sort of comment that the findings were relatively 
unsurprising because I think from an educational perspective, this was the wrong intervention for this group. Yeah, I'd, I'd sort of pick up on that and say, to me, it feels like an interesting design thinking exercise more than an actual intervention. Um, they've got some interesting stuff out there to fuel future scenario design potentially and understand a little bit more where you start to bring in extraneous cognitive load. Um, but I, I agree with you, Ben. I think a, a, a be, that step beyond um, core principle stuff of actually helping develop um, robust base heuristics so that the students can actually carry multiple things in their head at the same time, deal with some degree of conflicting information at the same time um, before layering in lots of other noise. It just reads to me like a really interesting and well-reported design thinking exercise. Yeah, I mean, there's some interesting ethical conundrums in there. I mean, you've thrown um, some med students in a situation that they're clearly not yet equipped to deal with and then set up an ethical conundrum where uh, sort of they're invited to a social media group that um, berates patients but are feeling overwhelmed by the need to have some social belonging and support in an environment where um, they're feeling overwhelmed and so kind of giving them mixed signals and then they certainly, I don't know whether they got any negative feedback about the fact that most of them chose to not speak up, but I think it, in some ways, it, yeah, it's a bit harsh. Yeah, it's a tricky one. Uh, some of this is sort of echoed in the some of the original competence uh, debates whereby, you know, people want to build up these little blocks of competence and then think that they will all fit together. I, I guess the counterpoint is that it is the tacit glue that surrounds those building blocks that often is what people need to do and to learn that later um, arguably doesn't allow people to learn the blocks in context. I think what I take away from this as well as the points you've both made is that this is a nice little needs analysis and I think we should be trying to incorporate complexity at some level into most of the simulations that we design, notwithstanding Jesse's appropriate warning about signal and noise. A bit like you say, those ethical dilemmas are interesting. We just recently um, have had done a project looking at building resilience through simulation and I've been we did it as a research project. But the students all knew that they were going into something that they would find overwhelming and, in fact, they really liked doing it, but I must admit I had plenty of misgivings at the time about, you know, do you actually run a separate resilience simulation or do you somehow incorporate that into your everyday simulations? And obviously there's probably a place for both. You're listening to Simulcast. All right. Well, we might go on to our last paper, and I have to put this in because we always like to tease Jesse about Fidelity, the terrible word. Uh, and in fact, fidelity is not mentioned in this paper. Instead, the title is, Is That Realistic? The Development of a Realism Assessment Questionnaire and Its Application in Appraising Three Simulators for a Gynecology Procedure. And this is in Advances in Simulation uh, this month, 2018. And it's by Erin Wilson and a number of colleagues from Australia, most here in Brisbane, David Hewitt, Brian Jolly, Sarah Jansons and Michael Beckman. So, just up the road from all of us. And uh, really, this is a paper that's focused very much on procedural simulation, but it does two things. One is it tries to look at how do we validate a questionnaire for assessing a level of realism, and then how do we use that to assess three simulators? So the uh, procedure that they were looking at was um, the insertion of an IUD 
And so the gynecologists were the people who were rating these three simulators. And as I said, there were sort of two steps to it. One is that they developed a long, fairly complex, at least in its first iteration, um, a simulator realism questionnaire. And there were probably two main parts of this and which they described actually quite well according to uh, to what extent does a simulator need to look real, which is the sort of anatomic structural engineer fidelity, or act real, which they describe as functional or psychological fidelity. And so their sort of questions were in those two broad categories and then they had some global questions as well. And then they actually applied that questionnaire using uh, the gynecologist to assess these three different simulators and to the uninitiated, these might sound a little humorous, but they were the flat uterus model, the desktop uterus model, and the pelvic model. But if you read the paper, they've got some lovely pictures there of those things. And if you are a daily practitioner of IUD insertion, you've probably practiced on one of these. So the study was in two parts. One was uh, undertaking the validation of the questionnaire, which they did, and I'm not going to go into the statistics for that, and then actually ranking the models according to uh, the metrics that they had developed in that questionnaire. And once again, if you're into the content area for this, the pelvic model is the best one uh, in terms of the realism as assessed by the gynecologists. So I think this is, you know, really rigorous work and knowing a couple of people uh, in that author group, I'm not at all surprised. A lot of it is quite mathematical when it th- when you do things like um assessing internal consistency of questionnaires and validating tools, uh, but I trust what they've done without being expert at all. Uh, And I think what it really gets to is some good work that people are doing around the place in trying to look at, well, what does matter to people with their engagement with simulation uh, and what impact does that have on learning? And I'm also reminded of things like Jess Stokes' parish work on moulage and the impact that that has on learning. And I think there's a lot of people around at the moment looking at some of these realism issues and the impact that they have um, for our simulation design. So having sort of teased you a little bit, Jesse, I might get your thoughts on this one first. I really like this paper and um, I, I think it's going to get heavily heavily cited by the subsequent papers that are essentially using that same sort of design to go forward with um with designing future part task trainers um the thing that i there was a couple of little just subtle things that i really liked that they included in there really explicitly and one that for some reason that just caught my eye was um the the subscale of response to instruments, which I think is a really important one for people that have um, that trained motor pattern and feel. And I've certainly used trainers for particular airway trainers are the ones that stick out to me that they just don't feel real in terms of their response to movements and manipulations and, and instrumentation at all. So um, that was, that was just a really interesting little one that caught my eye and just um, kind of I kept coming back to. Um, The other thing I'd love to commend them on is how they've nicely broken it down into the aspects of realism that matter and um, and not mentioning fidelity in there at all that I could read. I've had a couple of mini rants about fidelity, but the, the problem I have is it's a word that needs too much explanation in itself now. It's, so looking at those different, more discrete aspects of um, building a simulator are great. The final thing I thought 
that this does pave a, a nice way forward with is if there is a consistently low rated aspect um, or subscale on a simulator that's in development, it allows us to look at actually augmenting that with other forms of technology potentially as well. So this could be a really great gateway into looking at um, where more hybridization with um, virtual reality or augmented reality or human um human and simulator hybrids uh, could come into play and I just think having a uh, having something very specific to drive that is a really great starting point. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, these were all sort of physical simulators. So interesting to see how it compares something like VR, uh, just as you say, and then how you can put the experience together so that you're not just ranking one simulator but a, a range of experiences. Uh, what about you, Ben? Thoughts? Yeah, look, I, I don't know that I have the tools for knowing how to critique a paper like this yet, but I, I think um, I hope that developing a tool like this will really help with further research. And I think the practical take-homes for me were really noting that people did seem to value something that looks representative of their workplace reality, even if it somewhat impacted the function of what they were trying to practice. Yeah, I agree. I think the challenge will be, uh, but the what fortunate thing they didn't have to accommodate here was different perspectives of different team members. And having recently just been looking through a large amount of qualitative data about how people are perceiving our trauma simulations, people perceive some things very differently according to your profession and according to your role. And I think they are one of the challenges for us setting up um, high realism in some of our team-based simulation. But I think you've got to start with this kind of thing as we start to develop other tools and questionnaires. All right. Well, thank you, gentlemen. Uh, nice step through the papers of the month. Just about wrapping up time, but it is the end of the year. So I might have to prompt you both for one or two highlights of your simulcast year before we go off on our happy little Christmas break. Um, and you're allowed to add in any announcements before your highlights as well. So uh, who wants to start? Uh, sure, I'll jump in. So uh, I'd have to say I've already mentioned it, but my highlight this year for simulcast was doing the Journal Club Live and um, working with you guys for Don't Forget the Bubbles. And I think for me, my big take-home for this year for Journal Club and going through all of the articles that we've had is I think if anything, it's empowered me to lean in to having some hard conversations and some honest conversations with people that I work with, people that I teach and the people in my life in a way that maybe is more structured than it used to be. And I think breaking that down has really helped me have more uh, real conversations with people that I care about. So that's my big take home. That was far too deep for me to follow, but um like, like you, Ben, I really thoroughly enjoyed um, us being given the reins of our own session at Don't Forget the Bubbles in Melbourne this year and being able to do the the um, Journal Club live together but also watch uh, Vic interview Cara and um, and you, Ben, interview Yanni. Um, was, I, I'm really looking forward to those coming out uh, via the Don't Forget the Bubbles podcast as well. The other massive um, highlight for me was Recess Toronto and I guess by way of announcement, um, that probably the thing to announce there is that Recess Toronto 2.0 will be running again in September um, next year. So the, we're also going to be a bit of a conduit to that again through the Simulcast website, at least in the um, – near foreseeable future and there will be registration going live sometime around late January for um, Recess 
TO 2.0. So that was a phenomenal sort of merging of resuscitation science, team um, team and behavioral sciences and simulation. So really the physical embodiment of um, a lot of what makes the simulcast tick. So, and that was a privilege to be there with you, Vic. And you've both uh, highlighted my highlights of the year. The, uh, as you say, the Don't Forget the Bubbles session was great and uh, we're making a play to do a similar session at the Australasian Simulation Congress, which, if we haven't said before, is on the first week of September here on the Gold Coast. Um, other highlights, including ResusTO and looking forward to 2019, that is for sure, and doing that opening with you, Jesse, was great. Uh, another highlight was that uh, lovely Friday night in Boston in May with you, Ben, and a range of others, so uh, there's plenty Absolutely. of... Um, Happy thoughts there. Uh, but certainly simulcast and podcasting continues to be one of the highlights of my um, working life. And, uh, again, further announcements, we're looking forward to seeing people at IMSH and uh, bringing those who can't be there some of the highlights. So we did our little podcast on that a week or so ago, but um, we'll probably be hearing from us that might be the next time, although we will be having a Journal Club, not this month, but when do we start again, Ben? Uh, yeah, so we will start up again in February 2019, which is uh, feels like a long way away, but I'm sure it won't be. Absolutely. Well, it's been a pleasure. Thank you all. Uh, and thanks to our listeners. And once again, just a shout out if you can uh, give us any feedback. We're always keen to hear. Uh, and suggestions. Who do you want us to interview? What papers do you want us to look at in Journal Club? Uh, because we're all keen to see if we can do the things that you're interested in. So uh, signing off for Simulcast, I'm Victoria Brazel here again with uh, Ben Simon and Jesse Spur. Thanks, gentlemen. Thanks so much, Vic. Thanks, Jesse, for coming along. Thanks. You're listening to Simulcast. <laughs>